Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I am New York Historical's president and CEO, Louise Mirror, and it really is a great, great pleasure for me to see so many of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium this evening. Tonight's program, as I think most, if not all of you know, is presented in conjunction with our exhibition, Lincoln and the Jews. And I hope that if you have not yet had a chance to see it, you rush back during regular museum hours to see it because it's closing rather soon. Uh, I also uh, want to remind you that we have several other exhibitions on view right now. Uh, the Al Hirschfeld Century, which is a really terrific retrospective of Hirschfeld's work, as well as Picasso's Tricorn, which just opened on our second floor with our newest acquisition, which is Picasso's Tricorn, the, the great painting that hung in the Four Seasons for nearly half a century. Tonight's program, Lincoln and the Jews, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And as always, I would like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his great support, which has enabled us to bring so many fine speakers to this auditorium. I'd also like to recognize and thank some New York Historical Trustees in attendance this evening. Above all, our chair, Pam Schaffler, I'd like to recognize and thank Pam for the remarkable work that she does on our behalf. Seated next to her is Glenn Louie and Mr. Richard Reese, as well as our longtime trustee and great benefactor of our library, Patricia D. Klingenstein. Thanks so much to all of you. I would also like to uh, thank and recognize Thea Wieselter, who was my partner in many respects during the production of this great exhibition, and of course to recognize a very special guest in the audience this evening, Ron Chernow, who has delighted us so much with Hamilton and much, much more. Thanks. Um, I can't miss, because she's right in front of me, and we just gave her award, and she's just our award for Women in Public Life, and she's just won Yet another Lifetime Achievement Award, Leslie Stahl. And thank you, Leslie, for being with us, our greatest friend. So now on to, um, to tonight's program. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. Audience members will be asked to line up in front and back of standing mics to my left and my right in the aisles. We do this so that the speakers on the stage members of the audience, and those who access our podcasts can all hear your questions. There will be no formal book signing this evening. However, following the program, there will be pre-signed copies of books by our speakers available for purchase in our museum store. Tonight, we are truly delighted to welcome Jonathan D. Sarna, who is recognized as the leading commentator on American Jewish history, religion, and life. Dr. Sarna is the Joseph H. and Bell B. Brown Professor of American Jewish History at Brandeis University and Chief Historian of the National Museum of American Jewish History. He's written, edited, or co-edited more than 30 books, including his recently released book, Lincoln and the Jews, A History. He's best known for the acclaimed and definitive book, American Judaism, A History, which won the Jewish Book Council's Jewish Book of the Year Award in 2004. 
We are also delighted to welcome our moderator for this evening, Harold Holzer, who is the Roger Hertog Fellow at the New York Historical Society, and also chairman of the Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Foundation and a recipient of the National Humanities Medal. He's the author, co-author, or editor of more than 40 books on Lincoln and the Civil War era, including Lincoln and the Power of the Press, which was awarded the 2015 Gilder Lerman Lincoln Prize. Mr. Holzer served as content consultant to the Steven Spielberg film Lincoln, and his book, The Civil War in 50 Objects, tells a story of the Civil War through the use of objects from the New York Historical Society's own collection. And now, as we welcome our speakers to the stage, I ask that you please make sure that anything that makes a noise like a cell phone is switched off. And yes, please join me in welcoming Jonathan Sarna and Harold Holzer. Oh, good evening, and thank you all for uh, braving the sudden chill and coming out tonight for this uh, conversation. And we promise we are going to do all of this tonight, including your questions, in 60 minutes, although I am going to try to avoid looking at the great Leslie Stahl because I keep thinking there's going to be a clock ticking <laughs> as we proceed through this. I hope all of you have seen the exhibition upstairs. How many people have seen the exhibition? Oh, that's wonderful. If you haven't, if you haven't seen it twice, go before Sunday, because it is a remarkable achievement based on a remarkable book that my friend Jonathan Sarna is holding. And what a great opportunity to talk to you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Welcome. Tell us, let's get right into the story. What was the the Jewish population of the United States before the war, numerically and in terms of influence as well? So on the eve of the Civil War, there were about 150,000 Jews. Uh, but what's interesting is how in Lincoln's lifetime, you move from a Jewish population of, say, 3,000 when Lincoln is born to 150,000, almost all of them Central European immigrants, uh, on the eve of the Civil War. And they're coming from, mostly from Germany. Germany, Poland, that area, some other places, mostly Central Europe. Railroads have begun to make it possible for people to move. There are multiple economic crises, as well as anti-Jewish persecutions and laws. And there's also a pull factor. People have begun to read and hear about the United States. Uh, of course, many non-Jews are coming from Central Europe to America. Think of the German community in mm -hmm. Cincinnati and St. Louis and so on. But Jews, if you do the math, come at a rate of about four times uh, the non-Jewish population. Whenever you see that kind of disparity, you know the Jews are also coming for reasons uh, that, that pertain to Jews alone, and we know those reasons. And of course, the most famous of the reasons is that in some of the German states, there were restrictions on Jewish marriage because they did not want the Jewish population to increase, and that, of course, um, uh, was a big incentive for some people uh, to move to America. So aside from finding opportunity and freedom, what sort of bigotry 
impediments do they find? I mean, it's obviously not totally a land of milk and honey because there's resentment. There's, with the, gro the rapid growth of the Jewish population, um, you certainly can see significant prejudice. <coughs> sometimes, excuse me, sometimes you see it today in graphic images of the peddler uh, who's viewed in very negative terms. Uh, there is a sense, and this plays out in our story, uh, the Jews are smugglers. Mm -hmm. uh, an image of the Jew that is already brought uh, from Europe. Uh, so, um, and, and there is, of course, a traditional Christian anti-Semitism that manifests itself. What is so remarkable is that you don't find that in Lincoln. You find it among many of the people with whom he associates. Some of the generals, Butler and others, um, are openly and almost proudly uh, anti-Semitic. Uh, but you do not find it in Lincoln because, in part, Lincoln had Jewish friends and associates at a young age. And when you have friends, then somehow Jews can't be so bad because, after all, my friend Abraham Jonas is a wonderful person. And therefore, says Lincoln, I don't judge uh, uh, groups. I look at individuals. And that plays which out. Is unique, which is pretty unique to him in that circumstance. I think so. Before we get to Jonas, who is such a fascinating character, and I'm going to suggest something mm -hmm. to you about the relationship and ask you to comment on it. But one more scene-setting question mm -hmm. that I think is important. Jews inherently freedom-loving as they may be also migrate south and mm -hmm. also become part of a southern slave culture. So talk about the different, I mean, how Jews are morphing into different kinds of citizens. Right. So you have Jews north and south. Uh, probably in the area of the Confederacy, there are about 30,000 of that 150,000 uh, Jews. All of those numbers are guesstimates. Uh, Jews in the south resemble their neighbors. Very, very few Jews in the south owned plantations. Judah Benjamin, who is, we may talk about and goes on to a great career, uh, uh, in the South, um, uh, in government had a plantation, but most Jews were new immigrants, but their neighbors had house slaves. They had uh, mm -hmm. house slaves. And uh, what we find is the Jews are as divided as their neighbors are on the matter of slavery. It's not like, say, Quakers who are intensely anti-slavery even though you might have imagined that given the Exodus story, Jews would be anti-slavery, it doesn't work out that way. You have Jews who um, are persuaded that their being Jewish should make them anti-slavery. Abraham Dittenhofer is a good example of that. Um, uh, but many just follow in the ways of their neighbors. But they're also quoted, quoting some parts of the Bible in which slavery right. is is no absolutely. Yeah. And the same debate over the Bible and slavery that goes on in America uh, generally goes on within the Jewish community. And so, a David Einhorn uh, will insist that the whole spirit of the Bible militates against slavery. 
And Morris Raffal will say, what do you mean? Slavery is mentioned in the Ten Commandments. By the way, it is. And um, uh, that uh, uh, to oppose slavery is to say that the Bible is wrong. And then some of his critics will say, wait a minute, polygamy is in the Bible. Concubinage is in the Bible. Should we also... Stoning, few uh, right, should we take all of those things on? Of course, um, polygamy is part of the general debate over Mormonism in that period. And so it goes back and forth in Jewish circles, no less than in general circles, except some of the Jews would quote the Hebrew. And uh, so when Morris Raffal gives a celebrated address, by the way, he gave one version right here at New York Historical Society on the Bible and slavery, um, uh, one of the Southern papers, which loved what Rabbi Raffal of B'nai Jeshurun, today known as BJ, um, uh, B'nai Jeshurun said, uh, Rabbi, uh, one of the Southern papers says, oh, Listening to Rabbi Raphael, it's as if Moses came down from the mountain and told us uh, what God's word is. Obviously, there were other people. Every rabbi, of course, wishes that his sermons were viewed in that fashion, but there were other rabbis uh, who staunchly uh, disagreed and... Uh, uh, you know, so it's, it's complicated. The right. culture and is when complicated. Lincoln, second inaugural, he talks about how they both quoted the same Bible. That was as true in the Jewish world mm -hmm. as in general America. So you mentioned it, the, the, the show, for, and so many of you have seen it. <laughs> Sorry. You missed All me. All right. Thou shalt not spill. You left uh, that yeah, out of Yeah, all right. That's why they made me a professor. I mean, <laughs> it's clear that I wasn't fit for anything else. Sorry. <laughs> I hope this isn't an antique table, Louise. Yeah. Uh, this was Rabbi Raphael's bima. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we have all to right, stop joking. All right, it's water over the bridge. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> all right, come on. Yeah. All right, so you mentioned the show, it seems to me, is... There are two threads in it that fascinate me. One is, and I, I, I don't mean to, to belittle it, it mm -hmm. but so it's the some of my best friends are Jewish part of the show. And it's fascinating. I, I mean, I got into this subject years ago, not anywhere near as deeply as Professor Sarna has, but Lincoln had an extraordinary range of acquaintances. And then that's, so I want to talk about that, and then we'll get to the three major test issues that I talk about um, where Lincoln had some choices to make mm -hmm. and extraordinarily to me made the right choice every time. But let's talk about Jonas. So Abraham Jonas is a lawyer uh, in uh, an Illinois town, someone Lincoln would have encountered uh, along the, the judicial circuit as he, which he rides many months of every year. What do you think I know what I think, but tell me what you think linked them together and got them to be as close as they well, were. It's not just that they're both lawyers, and they also have a series of friends uh, in common, but they're also deeply interested in politics, and they, of course, come down on the same side. Exactly, and I think that's politics. key. Lincoln is looking for Whig supporters, compatriots, colleagues all over the circuit. But it's still extraordinary that this guy with a lot of children, an Orthodox Jew, becomes part of that orbit. Yeah, I, I, he, I, I'm not sure how Orthodox he was. He once uh, 
had dinner with Abraham Lincoln in uh, uh, an oyster saloon, which um, I don't, wouldn't recommend taking your orthodox rabbi friend there, but um, I, uh, uh, but. I was know. basing it on the fact that he had, what, 10 children or something? <laughs> well, uh, they had two uh, different wives. They, they, um, uh, they, they, they uh, in any case, um, no question, Jonas's brother, come, Joseph Jonas, who's probably the first significant Jewish resident of Cincinnati, comes down on the other side, yes. which is interesting. Uh, he's a Democrat. He, I mean, from our perspective, uh, Joseph Jonas writes horrific things about uh, African Americans, but not Abraham Jonas, who becomes a very devoted Republican. And is and one of Lincoln's quote most valued friends, which he says a lot, but not about Jews, right? Except for Jonas. And um, it is, I think, clear that there is a deep friendship both in the appointments and that letter uh, from different children of Jonas who remember Lincoln. We, of course, have much less of Lincoln from that period than later. Uh, But so you know, Lincoln was not a great archivist and did not begin to keep his incoming correspondence until 1860 when he got a couple of secretaries to help him. But tell people the story of, we skip ahead to the Civil War. First he makes Jonas a postmaster, which is a typical- And then he appoints his wife postmaster. After he dies, yeah. That's unusual for Lincoln to keep it in the family. But tell the story about the Jonas son and the pardons. That's truly, uh, oh, okay, I thought you were going about slavery, but you want to move to the pardon. I'll just say... So the one of the deathbed visit. Uh, 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 first, one of Joseph's sons, uh, jo- uh, one, I'm sorry, one of Jonas's sons works with Lincoln to free a slave, uh, to free an African-American who's come from Springfield to New Orleans. They want to enslave him. Jonas's son is there. Jonas and Lincoln work together to free that African-American. Mm-hmm. And it's not a big story even in Lincoln biographies, but it tells you a lot about both men. Um, now, later, uh, when uh, 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 Joan, Abraham Jonas is dying and he wants to see, uh, for the last time, his son, who has been imprisoned uh, because he fought for the Confederacy the key, yeah. uh, and captured Jonas's sons, some fight for the Confederacy, some fight for the Union. That is, of course, not unique in the Civil War annals, where literally it pit family members against other family members, but it's particularly poignant in this case, where the father is so pro-Union, actually at one point says we ought to hang these Confederates, but many of his children uh, were living in New Orleans, their mother, was um, uh, from New Orleans, and they had southern ties there, the Block family, and uh, they fought for the Confederacy. Uh, This son has been imprisoned, and Lincoln writes a pass that allows this imprisoned son to go and have a leave to visit his father, to visit Lincoln's uh, friend, Abraham Jonas, he arrives just in the nick of time, according to what the letters say, sees his father, his father dies, he then goes back and spends really the rest of the war 
uh, in uh, in prison. Right. Um, so it is an extraordinary. And thing. the pass is upstairs. Yeah. That little yeah. piece of little paper pass. that this yeah. fellow used to get out to be paroled for the deathbed vigil and then to be returned. It's an extraordinary story, and I think it proves that here is one relationship that was very, mm -hmm. very strong and very powerful. Uh, my minor, con very minor contribution to the show was this to a comment on the flag that Lincoln gets as president-elect from Abraham Cohn, K-O-H-N, mm -hmm. which has this verse from Deuteronomy. And I think Lincoln, you know, if he gets a Hebrew inscription, he's going to ask someone, what, mm -hmm. what does it say? And whithersoever thou goest, or yes. God will be with you. And then what does Lincoln say when he leaves Springfield a few days later, trusting in him who can go with me mm -hmm. and remain with you, you and be everywhere for good? And I think he took that right out yeah. of that yeah, uh, that's fascinating, and that's very nice. It's Joshua, I think, uh, uh, that that, that uh, verse comes That's from. why he's here, to correct these minds. The, no, that's uh, they, they, uh, uh, but uh, they, uh, it is amazing. That he, Abraham Cohn, again, is one of these, a very significant early Jew in Illinois, staunchly anti-slavery, um, uh, and he is a very significant religious leader. Unlike many, he knew good Hebrew. He presents Lincoln with this flag, and um, it's of course um, a very appropriate for a leader who is going off into a very dangerous waters. Uh, he, um, uh, uh, he 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 gives him this appropriate verse, which people understood at the time. Uh, was uh, accepted, but you know, it's wonderful. Uh, and I'm sure he remembered as he commits so much to memory. Perhaps he even remembered reading it in the Bible uh, during Link his own Lincoln studies. He could quote Lincoln so much knew of his Bible yeah. incredibly well. Over and over again, we realized that a particular sentence or half sentence really had a biblical origin. Uh, this came so naturally. And in Lincoln's case, as in the case of many early Americans, it's the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, uh, which he quotes very often, much more often than the New, and um, uh, which uh, really suffuses uh, his, his writings, even when you don't realize it. Well, I hope we get a chance to talk about the decades and generations of interpretation of Lincoln's religious beliefs, but let's do one more friend huh? first. My favorite Lincoln friend, my, my favorite Lincoln Jewish friend is Dr. Zachary. Oh. What a character. I hope you have all gotten to see the letters and the passes. Lincoln's foot doctor and back doctor who apparently knew what he was doing because Lincoln had gigantic painful corns and misfitting shoes that plagued him for his entire life. I mean, he didn't just wear carpet slippers because he was chronically informal. He was in pain. But this Dr. Zachary is, and we were talking a bit before the, the program, he's the hard one to figure out. But tell us a little bit about this extraordinary so, fellow. Uh, astonishing, really. And it's just at the time when Jonas is dying. So William Cullen Bryant here in um, New York uh, writes a letter of introduction for Zachary 
uh, to Lincoln Bryant, uh, of course, a famous poet and editor. And the man who introduced Lincoln at Cooper Union. And, right, introduced him at Cooper Union, but he's also a very great walker, which means since people <laughs> in those days did not have well-fitting shoes, uh, you can do an experiment, put your left uh, foot in your right shoe and vice versa and walk around for a week. You'll need a chiropodist too. And, um, uh, and uh, Bryant had discovered this Zachary and he writes to Lincoln uh, recommending Zachary and the idea was that there ought to be a chiropody corps in the Union Army uh, who will treat the the feet of these soldiers who are, after all, marching, marching hundreds huge of miles, di uh, yeah. distances in rather ill-fitting boots and and fetching about it. So you need. Yeah, I don't remember that word. Oh yes, used no, no, it wasn't. But but it's in the official records I of the see. rebellion. And um, uh, of course, they're not well fitting. And Zachary, for re nobody really has solved the mystery of how Zachary learned it. Zachary claims to have studied with all sorts of doctors. And written an authoritative book, which text. he may have plagiarized. Right. The, the book is plagiarized. The doctors in one case were dead before he was there. I went, I went one by one, <laughs> I, I, I uh, but um, uh, nobody, at least I haven't, and I don't know anybody who has solved the mystery of where exactly Zachary learned the trade, but everybody agrees that he was the foremost chiropodist, podiatrist, we would say, uh, of the time. And indeed, um, uh, he is well known in, first, in, he's known in California, he's known in New York for his skillfulness. He has dozens and dozens of famous people who, from, beginning with Henry Clay, uh, who write uh, about his skill. Uh, Lincoln, too, writes no fewer than three. You have some of them in the exhibit. Three different recommendations uh, for uh, Zachary, and indeed, uh, he not only treats his feet, but as you point out, uh, his back and his wrist. I, I love think. what Lincoln says. He's helped me with what the common people call backache. Right. It's wonderful. It's, uh, it's fabulous. Vintage, vintage Lincoln. Right. Um, and... Um, but here's where, yeah. here's where the two ro roads diverge in the wood. We, we have Zachary, the gifted podiatrist, who really does help Lincoln, and Lincoln sings his praises and wants him to get some army contract. And then we have Zachary, the emissary, the man who sells himself to Lincoln as the guy who's going to go to the Jewish community in Union-occupied areas of the South, like New Orleans, mm -hmm and convince the Jewish population that Lincoln is the guy and unionism is the thing. And that's when he starts angering the, the, the bureaucracy in right. Washington. Well, I mean, two things. It is amazing, the idea um, that you're going to send him there and because Jews are significant in mm. the upper reaches of New Orleans society and government, think Judah Benjamin mm -hmm. and, and others in Louisiana, the governor and others, uh, that he's going to be able, as a Jew, to win them over back to the Union side, and he'll be able to use the ethnic-religious tie um, in that way. 
And of course, we know uh, that um, uh, while he's there, he's also helping various Jewish captives. He's later given a present, a very handsome one, for assisting people to get them out of jail, to excuse them, to give them good advice uh, if they got into trouble with the Union authorities. And meanwhile, he's writing to Lincoln saying, I'm doing great work for you. Here's a pineapple. And I'm, a, I'm spying, right. And I think that all of these How many grits and all these great that he sends food, to yeah. Lincoln, largely when Lincoln would do him a favor, he would return the favor with these fruits. He's clearly sending intelligence, uh, and then he has the idea uh, that he's going to uh, be able somehow to forge a peace. And he um, uh, is one of these guys who is going to try and forge a separate peace, actually does go and meets with Judah Benjamin. In Richmond. Uh, in Richmond, and with Lincoln's permission. Uh, of course, nothing comes of it. Um, and it's very difficult to know whether Zachary was playing each side against the other, uh, which is one way of re reading the documents, or whether he was as loyal as Lincoln thought he was. In any case, he doesn't make the peace. But then we meet Zachary again in 1864 when Lincoln is running for president, and that is really the very first moment when we can see a kind of Jewish politics, meaning Zachary, uh, at a time when Lincoln thinks he's not going to win this election, Zachary says he's going to win Jews over to Lincoln. And this is crucial because in this collection, there is an, and it's in the Civil War and 50 Objects book, is a, a chart that Lincoln made in the Telegraph office in September of 1864 in which he calculates his path to the presidency. And he only has himself winning by one electoral vote. And he concedes he's going to lose New York. And then comes Zachary saying, if we can get enough Jews to the polls. Yeah. Um, then as now, I think a lot of people exaggerate the power of the Jewish vote. Uh, but um, <laughs> what is fascinating is he argues, you know, I got all the Jews well organized here. I got people who are going to bring them to the polls and make sure they vote as they should. And Lincoln is very grateful. Sure. Um, but and, the Jewish newspapers are not happy that he's right. talking about a Jewish vote. Right. And the interesting thing is, I don't think they minded so much the Jewish messenger, especially the Jews voted for Lincoln, but you shouldn't talk about it. And Zachary was very garrulous, uh, couldn't keep his mouth shut, which is not very good for a spy. And, um, um, and, and they were very worried that this would foment uh, uh, anti-Jewish feelings. Of course, Lincoln wins big in 1864. And again, Lincoln keeps his promise. Uh, Zachary had asked that as soon as Savannah fell, he would be allowed to visit Savannah, where I think his father was. He had relatives in Savannah. And no sooner does Savannah fall than Lincoln gives him a pass. And this is, right, this is Christmas, the famous letter from right, sure. General Sherman. I give you as a Christmas, Christmas right. gift the city of Savannah and 60 guns and all this stuff. And, and Zachary right. is right there going. Seward doesn't want him to go. Seward does not Seward trust Zachary uh, and actually imprisons him for a while. 
But Lincoln... Um, well, he's arrested. On right, he's arrested, yeah. exactly. And then Lincoln writes a very sharp letter, which we have, in which he says, I promised him, and please give him a pass. And indeed, uh, 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 Zachary is given a pass and goes with his nephew to Savannah and, and, and so on. Um, so we can really see this remarkable... Uh, relationship, uh, which lasts practically until uh, the assassination. And then, you know, Zachary goes back to uh, his rather lucrative uh, podiatry business uh, in New York, um, uh, you know, uh, well, well And with his 70s. book of endorsements. From yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. We, we talked about this. There's more work to be done on this fellow and maybe a book. And maybe in a fact, you could play, write a maybe good a movie. Somebody looking... For a film, Lincoln and Zachary would be fascinating. But I urge you, again, if you haven't focused on this in your visit or visits to the show, this little section with these extraordinary original endorsements and letters and Lincoln's famous about Jews memo where he lumps two, mm -hmm. two benevolent orders together. Unfortunately, he says about Jews to start the memo. But anyway, you know, I, I read that. Yeah, do we differ about that? Well, because to my mind, what's so fascinating about that about Jews' letters is in both cases, he's siding with the Jews Absolutely. against people who wanted to persecute them. In one, it's Zachary, whom he's allowing to go to Savannah, and in the other, the other Jew in that same memo is a man named Blumenberg, From Baltimore. whom they want, in Baltimore, whom whom others wanted to throw out, and Lincoln says, wait a minute, he served us well, he was wounded in the Civil War, let's not disgrace him, and indeed, uh, Lincoln ensures that he gets a different patronage position. So in both cases, others say, what do you want, they're Jews, and Lincoln uh, reverses, in both mm -hmm. cases, the order. So about Jews, is what's interesting there is he sides with the Jews against those uh, who wanted to treat them harshly. Good story, bad headline. That's yeah, yeah that's right. right. But So we could go, I, I do want to give people a chance to ask questions, but I want to get to the mm -hmm. issue mm -hmm. uh, part of our discussion. We've talked about the friends, and the friends are fascinating. So some key issues. The first one that Lincoln has to deal with is uh, the unfairness of the military chaplaincy laws. And, and one thing that's sort of an interesting sub-story is the member of Congress who first initiates a correction to the law that says that only people of Christian, only prelates of Christian denomination can be military chaplains is just about the worst person to, to introduce such a bill as far as Lincoln is concerned. It's Clement Vallandigham, the Ohio congressman who Lincoln later allows to be arrested and tried by the military and banned from the United States. So, uh, but nevertheless, but it is fascinating <laughs> that the story basically, uh, you once you have a military uh, as part of the the, the laws uh, allowing an increase in the military, you have to have military chaplains. Congress wanted to make sure that the chaplains would be bona fide chaplains. And so they said, well, if you want to have a chaplain, 
it can't just be anybody. It has to be a minister of some Christian denomination. And that dates to the Revolutionary War. Right, that was an earlier definition for the average congressman. It had to be a minister, not just anybody mm -hmm. off the street. That was sensible. Uh, but again, the number of Jews in America has increased markedly, and you're going to have uh, 8,000 Jews in the Union Army, and the Jews realize that they are now legally second-class citizens. These Jews cannot have chaplains to minister to their needs under this law. And they try. They and try I, to have exactly. Shabbat services. They they hold them on Sunday to not offend on a day of work, quote unquote. It's not, and it doesn't it's not just theory. Uh, one unit, which has a lot of Jews, elects. In those days, chaplains were elected. Elect a Jewish chaplain, though he does all of these things. He's very good, but the YMCA hears about it. And manifestly, the man is not a Christian. And then, uh, they, then they appoint a man from not very far from here. He's the assistant rabbi at Sherith Israel today, the Spanish and Portuguese synagogue. His name is Arnold Fischel. And the same problem, and indeed there we actually have a letter from uh, 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 the um, Secretary of War saying, you know, you're obviously highly competent, but you're not a Christian, and therefore we cannot... Um, we cannot put you in. So Fischl becomes the representative of the Jewish community to fight this battle. And he goes down to Washington, and he's done his homework. So he um, goes to the White House, and Lincoln, who tended in any case to see religious figures when they came to visit him, uh, even though, the, you know, you remember from Spielberg's uh, film, how many people crowded uh, there to see Lincoln. Lincoln immediately brings Fischl in, and um, here at the American Jewish Historical Society at the Center for Jewish History, we have all of those records. According to Fischl, Lincoln reads the documents and uh, you know says, I had not been aware of this. Something ought to be done. And we know that Lincoln was deeply involved in the very, very clever political maneuvering that went in to changing that rule. It's not easy. It wouldn't be easy today to get Congress to change language like that. How would you tell your constituent? So they don't change the language. Instead, they construe some Christian denomination to mean some religious denomination, right. and then they bury that in a very long bill, which gives essentially raises to very popular generals. Nobody votes against such a bill, and the amendment passes, and within days of that amendment passing, uh, Lincoln appoints the first Jewish chaplain, a man named Jacob Frankel, and suddenly we have facts on the ground. That changes America. Henceforward, the chaplaincy is open to all sorts of people, um, and um, uh, as it is today. And one need only imagine if Lincoln hadn't done it, we'd have a different America. Jews would be legally second-class citizens in the army. So I do take it as very significant, and it is perfectly clear that it was Lincoln 
who was uh, leading the, this. Lincoln at his political best. best. Right. Not making a big semis out of him. <laughs> getting it as an amendment in a, in a very popular, irresistible bill. And, and I, I, I just wrote some notes here to remind us of the systemic anti-Semitism that existed in the American military. General Benjamin Butler, famous for allowing African Americans to come to Fortress Monroe, naming them contrabands of war, creating a movement that crested with the Emancipation Proclamation. He said, Jews betrayed their savior, they're now betraying the Union showed them no mercy. McClellan complained about having too many Jews in his, in his camp. Sherman, viciously anti-Semitic, <laughs> riled up General Grant. And, and the commander in chief had to be very yeah. delicate in these dealings as well. So you give them raises, they're all happy, and you change the chaplaincy law. It was an amazing oh. political feat. And I think, Absolutely Jonathan, amazing. you're right, that it changes. It makes first class equal citizens of Jews who are suffering or dying and need religious succor. I will add one point. You know, you read this material, of course, you, you, I read everything on the chaplaincy, and there discovered a letter, seemingly not cited by most Lincoln biographers, nothing to do with Jews, but one unit appoints a spiritualist woman as its chaplain. And, is she Christian? And he's a Christian, Christian spiritualist. And Lincoln writes there, she is a woman. The president has no objection to her, but it is not my decision. And of course, the Secretary of War was not willing to appoint a woman. But I said, this man really is prepared to accept religious outsiders of all kinds, not just Jews. Um, uh, he, he, his breadth of religious acceptance is way uh, in advance of, of what most Americans uh, were prepared to accept mm -hmm. in, uh, in the 1860s. And then I guess we have the big, the big issue to most uh, um, scholars, and a mysterious one in many ways, um, hard to explain. Um, although Lincoln's reaction is, again, brilliant in his political maneuvering, very clever. So in, in 1862, and you've written an entire mm -hmm. wonderful little book about this. I spoke about it here, yeah. Grant issues his Order Number 11, which bans Jews as a class from his military department, which is vast. You described it as sort of having the effect or the threat of a pogrom to people who had families who remembered that. Some people already began leaving Paducah in droves, mm -hmm. fearful of, of what was to come. Um, the, the exhibition text is a little unrelentingly tough on Grant on this issue. And um, you, know, you can make the case that Grant was a little more annoyed at his father and his father's business partner than he was at Jews in general. But Tell us your view of the order and Lincoln's well, response. So, I mean, the order, of course, uh, one is still shocked to read. It begins Jews as a class and are hereby expelled and, and so on. Uh, as soon as Lincoln hears of the order, and it takes a while mm -hmm. for the order to get to Washington, telegraph lines have been cut, uh, but a, a, one of those Jews who is expelled 
makes it to, uh, to Washington, and uh, Lincoln at once overturns the order, um, and later uh, tells visiting rabbis that he does not like to hear of uh, any group or class uh, uh, being punished on account of a few sinners. A really remarkable statement, I think, of Lincoln's philosophy. You judge people as individuals, not as a class. Now, later, as I show in, in, in a different book, when General Grant expelled the Jews, no question, as pres Grant from 1868, when he becomes president and onward, spends the rest of his life atoning for that order. As president, he probably did more for Jews um, and, uh, and opposes Jewish persecution than any previous president. He also appointed a lot of Jews. So Grant really uh, uh, tried to atone for that and I think was deeply embarrassed later uh, and saw it as a blot uh, on uh, his record. He doesn't mention it in his um, uh, autobiography, but uh, uh, his wife does. I was going to say sometimes what husbands like to forget, their wives like to remember. So his wife mentions it, goes out of her way, I think, to mention in what is otherwise not such an interesting memoir. And uh, she attacks the order and feels that, you know, Ulysses uh, 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 felt that he had been rightly reprimanded. Uh, uh, for that order against the class, which I think did reflect uh, Grant's um, uh, sense that he uh, had made a mistake and he, he was trying later to atone for it. But Lincoln immediately, and it's not a small matter, Grant was one of his best generals to overturn uh, that order as soon as he hears about it, uh, again tells you that Lincoln is extraordinary. And I have to imagine that that line about not um, judging a, 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 a class on the basis of a few sinners very much again reflected Lincoln's approach, uh, which was to judge individuals as individuals rather than as a class. And that would be true of African-Americans and true of Jews and true of Catholics. Lincoln, of course, is very unusual among uh, politicians, as you know so well, in never having been a know-nothing. So many others are caught up in that anti-Catholic hysteria, but not Lincoln. Uh, and in that sense, he is very remarkable, I think. A note on the Grant um, order, which, I, again, I love the politics of how he did it. I mean, here is General Grant, the victor of the Battle of Shiloh, who is hugely valuable to, controversial because of the casualties he takes, but a winner. Mm -hmm. And Lincoln does want the order overturned, but he is not going to call a press conference. I mean, he doesn't call a press conference. He's not going to tell the press, I am overturning General Grant's ill-conceived order. He has General Halleck, his general-in-chief, do it, if I'm not mistaken. And it's quietly done. And, um, and um, he, Grant saves face at, at that moment, yeah. and Lincoln gets what he wants. And again, um, something major happens in America, wouldn't you say? People as a, okay, a mean, group cannot be expelled. I mean, again, if you do a thought experiment and say, 
what would have happened if Andrew Johnson had been president at that moment? Johnson, who was, among many other problems, an anti-Semite, uh, that would have, I mean, he would have not had any hesitation in speaking about his hostility to Jews, would certainly not have overturned such an order. Indeed, he would have encouraged it. And we would have a different country today. Uh, it would have been remembered that even in America, they may write nice things in the Constitution, but when it comes to action, Jews can be expelled from places just like they were in Germany and other countries. And the whole history of America uh, would have been different, I think, uh, had uh, Lincoln not acted as he did in the chaplaincy matter and uh, the Grant Order. So 1862, both of those events are really 1862 at different ends. That is a very critical year in terms of showing that Jews are going to be equals in this country, notwithstanding the prejudice that some very significant people have. And um, that's really what makes this story important, uh, because uh, Lincoln does more, really, than any previous president to make Jews equal in the United States. Please, if you do have questions, come up to the microphones that we've set up in both aisles. And I hope you will have something to ask Professor Sarna or me. While we're waiting for the questioners, let's spend a minute about the second inaugural address mm -hmm. and that extraordinary moment before Lincoln begins to say, with malice toward none, with charity for all. He says, as was said, Thousands of years ago, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That's a psalm of David. That's I hope I'm right this time. Right, absolutely okay. right. And, and, and what does he say? a fairly obscure half sentence. I mean, it shows you uh, what, what, what's amazing to me is here, this is the most religious um, inaugural address any president Ever. has given. Yeah. And you would imagine that it would be Christological. But it's not. Lincoln really is discovering a vocabulary which can be broadly inclusive. You see that it's Gettysburg, where he, again, he knows Jews have fallen at Gettysburg. It's one, this nation under God, mm -hmm. which again is inclusive. Edward Everett is Christological in his endless speech at Gettysburg, not Lincoln. And the same in the second inaugural, he is broadly inclusive. Um, and again, this is very important in terms of presidential rhetoric. I mean, the that book is of Matthew non-Christians. Yeah. Oh yeah, he's quoting. Go to the world, but to the world because of offenses. But unlike the earlier Lincoln, who will talk about America as a Christian country, and may even issue orders about the importance of resting on the Sunday and so on, quoting George Washington, the later Lincoln is sensitive, I think, to Jews in a, uh, uh, and to Jewish uh, concerns. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes America a more religiously pluralistic country. That's what makes this story so significant. Interesting that he gets to that moment of pluralism. You can almost see the divide when he drops George Washington from his vocabulary as well. Mm -hmm. So, but that's, yeah. oh, that's another story. We have a question here. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, thank you. Tell us uh, your name. Uh, my name's Mark Mermelstein. And I was just curious what your uh, view was 
of Lincoln's religious sensibilities and his upbringing and his relationship to the Jewish Bible and how it might have influenced his political thinking and why it was seems to be a very central component uh, in, his, in his attitudes. Um, there is an enormous literature and, and debate really that begins in the 19th century about how religious Lincoln was and the truth of the matter is uh, that at different moments in Lincoln's life, he clearly had different religious attitudes as to most of us, it had a religious journey. Um, he um, comes from a very religious upbringing and background, but um, uh, very heavily predetermined, believing in determinism, and that's important. Uh, Lincoln's parents were opposed to missionizing because if God made you a Jew, you're a Jew. That's what God wanted. They thought it was the silliest idea to uh, uh, transform people. I think some of that rubbed off on Lincoln, a sense that, uh, you know, we take people as they are. Um, uh, but in any case, Lincoln's knowledge of the Bible uh, which uh, is what he's brought up on. There were not so many books uh, in Kentucky when he's growing up. Uh, that may have been the only one that he, you know, his parents had. I, I, there, there was a great deal of dispute even as to whether, how literate his parents were. But he knows the Bible inside out. And you find him quoting unusual books and and half sentences as he does in the second inaugural um, and so-called minor prophets that most people don't know. And Lincoln seems to know it all by heart, uh, which is truly extraordinary. Exactly how personally religious Lincoln was, he's not a member of a church. Um, his wife later tells us uh, after Lincoln is dying, has, has been assassinated, that on the very day he was assassinated, they talked about um, uh, how he would love to see Jerusalem uh, before he died. Some scholars accepted, some think she uh, made him more religious. I actually think it's reasonable uh, because a lot of other people were beginning to go to Jerusalem. Seward had gone to Jerusalem later. Grant is going to go to Jerusalem with the advent of steam, it was possible. And a man like Lincoln, who had so many religious questions, as he spells out in the second inaugural, which is really a man trying to work out some theological issues of the war, going to Jerusalem was the place where perhaps you could find answers to those religious conundrums. Remember that, in that same conversation, not to mm -hmm. demean that part of his Mm -hmm. aspiration for a post-presidential visit. He also said he wanted to see California. Yeah. <laughs> Just, <laughs> but I think, Mary, look, you have no better source than Mary's letter to right. Francis Carpenter about what he was thinking. I mean, I will just add that my own view of Lincoln's evolution as a religious thinker is that he becomes more immersed in the idea that the will of God prevails, as he writes, mm -hmm. as the casualties mount to unimaginable numbers and how can any leader live with 700,000 deaths at his doorstep without 
coming to the belief, rational or otherwise, that it is God who has determined that this fight must continue until this country is reunited. So, but it is a fascinating, fa another, another subject for another appearance, I hope. Yes? Jews have also have often been called upon in times of war to give their largesse to help the army that they favored. Were Jews called upon during the Civil War, and can you tell us about it? Uh, that's a very interesting question. In European history, you're absolutely right. In the medieval and early modern period, uh, Jews are often uh, called upon with an extra tax on the Jewish community, uh, a special tax which went to help the leader fight his wars. I, I recently um, visited the new uh, Jewish museum in Poland, Polin, and there you can see various occasions where in the kingdom of Poland there was a Jew tax, as they called it, um, uh, in order to some or other war. There is absolutely no occasion in American history where there is a special tax even contemplated, let alone levied, on the Jewish community. Uh, the Jewish In the Civil War, Jews are called upon, like everybody, is called upon to donate uh, to um, uh, the wounded veterans and to various charities. Uh, Jews actually have two kinds of charities, one uh, for Jewish soldiers who were wounded and one kind of general uh, soldiers. Uh, I can't remember, it's in the book, I can't remember if it's in the exhibit. Uh, one Jewish haberdasher made a suit for Lincoln, which was auctioned off, and people essentially paid for the suit, the money going to a charity and the suit going to Lincoln, and Lincoln handwrites a letter of thanks to the man who is actually the president of Mikveh Israel in Philadelphia, thanking him for this charitable act. Uh, but um, uh, there is no special levy on Jews, although you're right that uh, in Europe such things were known. Right. But Jay Gould and others were certainly financiers of the war and... and uh, helped with the national debt and oh, war bonds in a well, tremendous And there were way. Jews as well who were the Seligman, for example. There are certainly Jews who are involved in the financing Very much so. of, um, uh, of the country. And August Belmont. Uh, who, Not a great friend of Lincoln's, we should. Uh, no, but is, is at some point is a supporter of, uh, of the war and is involved in the House of Rothschild getting, mm -hmm. uh, getting um, uh, money. Uh, but they're not required to, as they often were, and it's nice that you know your European history, as they often were as a kind of separate estate in, uh, in, in, in the earlier um, uh, pre-emancipation Europe. We have time, because I see Leslie Stahl's imaginary clock ticking, we have time for one more question. Hi, Matthew Newport. Um I understand that Jews were just as divided in their attitudes about blacks and slaves. However, lest we think that Jews controlled the slave trade, which is something I find totally offensive, isn't it true that more than twice as many Jews fought for the Union as opposed to the Confederacy? Yeah, I, I didn't. Twice as many Jews did what for the Union? Fought for the Union. Fought for the union. No question. Yeah. Uh, 
uh, that that is. Don't the, the, uh, Eli Faber did a book on Jews and uh, the slave trade, uh, which is the most scholarly of the books. The history of slavery in America would not differ at all, even if not one Jew had come to America. Um, the tragedy of American New World history is that the New World proved very good for Jews, because you needed merchants, people who could trade, and, and Jews had those skills, and they had family in different places. And for African Americans, the New World is a disaster. You have sugar, you have tobacco, you need slaves. So the New World, tragically, is a blessing for Jews and a tragedy for African Americans. But I would not take that further. While it is certainly true that you can find some Jews who were slave traders, if you added it all together in North America, maybe slightly different in the Caribbean, it is different in Caribbean, but if you added all the Jewish slave traders of North America together, it's a very small percentage of the total number of slaves, and it's, it's really um, not correct, as Faber shows, uh, to blame the slave trade on Jews. Caribbean is a different story and a kind of different historical uh, setting. But to answer the last question, uh, there are many more Jews in the Union Army um, uh, because there are many more Jews in the Union than in the Confederacy. But there were significant Jews in the Confederacy. Judah Benjamin is one who rises as high as any Jew does in uh, the 19th century. Uh, my, my favorite line about uh, Judah Benjamin uh, was stated in Congress where Benjamin was described as an Israelite with Egyptian principles. Um, <laughs> uh, great, a line. great line. And um, uh, they, uh, you do have other Jews in the Confederacy. Fort Myers in Florida uh, is named oh, yeah. for a very significant uh, Jew uh, who is a kind of quartermaster uh, of the Confederacy. Uh, but um, uh, the bulk of Jews who fought in the Civil War um, uh, were in the Union Army. Okay. So we, a few minutes ago, we talked about what Mary heard Lincoln say on his final day. Lincoln didn't get to see the Promised Land, as we know. He, instead, he became a second Moses uh, himself. Uh, who proclaimed liberty throughout the land and to all the inhabitants thereof, a heroic act right out of the Bible. Um, in the wake of the Civil War and the embrace of this benevolent leader, the life of Jews and African Americans and many others changed, all because Lincoln really did, as you've demonstrated tonight and in your book and in the show, did believe in the idea that all men were created equal. Jonathan Sarna, um, some scholars are created more equal than others. <laughs> it's been an honor to share the stage with you. Tonight. Harold Holzer, thank you for coming back time and time again. Let's give Harold a really great hand. We have lots more to come next year, so stay tuned. Jonathan Sarna, thank you as well. 
Good evening, everyone. I'm Dale Gregory, the Vice President for Public Programs. I want to thank you. We all want to thank you so much for coming back again and again. And quickly, before you all leave, just let us know how many members, by raising your hand, are with us. Lots of wonderful members. We thank you for being members. Your membership helps support all these programs. And we invite those of you who are not yet members to join the family. Thank you very much.